0: Shut up, and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund.
1: Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like to cover college basketball for Barstool Sports? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 105 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right. The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available right after the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to The Bridge 24-7 at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Villanova sophomore Dante Di Vincenzo turned into a superstar overnight, scoring a career-high 31 points and route to Most Outstanding Player Accolades of the Final Four while leading the Wildcats to a 79-62 drubbing of Michigan for their second title in three years. It was a historic night to say the least, then a somewhat awkward one, when trolls took to social media to unearth some of Dante's older tweets from high school that he probably wouldn't have sent out now, then resulting in his account getting wiped shortly after. Regardless, it was a game that lead play-by-play announcer Jim Nance would certainly want DiVincenzo to remember. However, Nance's tradition, unlike any other, affording a deserving player with his game worn broadcasting tie, was since retired. Let's flash back to around this time last year to when we paid homage to Jim's interesting accolade. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News, Red Like Real News.
0: A tradition unlike any other, the Masters on CBS. That sacred
1: phrase from sportscaster Jim Nance is a tradition in itself and has been the tease for the Masters for the past several years. But Nance has quietly taken part in his own personal tradition for the past several years as well while broadcasting at the NCAA Tournament Championship. That is, until the sports media ruined the moment. While the new champions are awarded their trophies and players and coaches are interviewed following the title game, another award has quietly been presented to a player, usually a senior, that inspires both on and off the court. That recipient is selected by Nance, who then presents the player with his game-worn suit tie. Although an article of clothing may seem like a silly accolade to a college basketball player after winning a national championship, the gesture has more behind it than Nance just undressing on the court. In the book Nance wrote about the relationship with his father, he noted of the informal boyhood rite of passage of having your dad teach you how to tie a tie. And if my father is listening, I still don't know how. Coupled with his moments of watching presidents give away their cufflinks on the golf course or like a star athlete might throw his sweaty headband into the stands, Nance uses his ties as keepsakes if the situation is right. In 2006, while Nance was covering the Final Four for CBS, the storyline for the finals centered around some Florida players who had famous fathers in the sports world. Nance ended up interviewing another player, Corey Brewer, and found out his father was in the hospital and could not make the trip to the championship game. He would wish Mr. Brewer well during the broadcast, then ended up giving Corey his tie after the game to remember the weekend. When Florida returned to the Final Four the following year, Nance asked another player just what Corey Brewer had done with the tie. When he found out it was hanging in his locker, a tradition definitely unlike any other was born. Since then, Nance has continued the gesture. Kyle Singler got one when Duke won in 2010, and Quinn Cook got it when they won again five years later. Darius Miller has won from Kentucky's 2012 championship, and rumors are that Mario Chalmers and Ty Lawson also received ties, though Nance can't recall all of the players he's presented them to. The tie presentation has all but gone unnoticed by the national media for almost a decade. That is, until last year. When Nance awarded his necktie to Villanova senior Ryan Archidiacono, after last year's title game, cameras caught the exchange, which prompted an on-court interview with Nance and became a topic of discussion during the post-game interview with Villanova. Stories were written that tore Nance to shreds for being a weirdo or a psychopath, and the meaning of the moment was usually lost. Hell, even Archie Diacono, who let his roommate wear the tie out the next night, has said the tie is now somewhere in his house thrown along with his other saved final four items. So this year, as the Tar Heels celebrated, Nance remained fully clothed. In a phone interview with USA Today Sports, he decided it should be a private moment and was never meant to receive so much national attention. However, the tradition isn't dead quite yet. Nance also said that he might write a note and send a tie or call one of the North Carolina players. That is, once he's done broadcasting, his second favorite tradition, unlike any other. I'm John Lund. For sports news, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to practice tying a tie. When we come back, we'll talk to a college hoops writer from Barstool Sports to put a bow on the NCAA tournament. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into The Bridge anytime at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week we want to know, what will you remember most from this year's NCAA tournament and why? Now to a segment of The Bridge where we highlight some of the best quotes or sound bites from the latest week in sports. Here's this week's edition of The What? What you say? We've already paid homage to Jim Nance and his Thai tradition last year, but unfortunately Jim also went viral during this year's NCAA Final Four games. During Michigan's 69-57 victory over Loyola Chicago to make the national championship game, Michigan junior Moe Wagner went after a loose ball and had his momentum take him off the court where he nearly crashed into the TBS commentary crew. Wagner did manage to hurdle the table and avoid any major collisions, only breaking Bill Raftery's glasses in the process. But during the leap, color commentator Grant Hill looked like he was seeing a ghost in the form of Mo Wagner, which made for some pretty hilarious still images. Hill was also recognized that night for making the Hall of Fame, so during Villanova's route of Kansas to also make the finals, Nance made mention of that and the viral moment of Grant Hill's, only to create a viral moment of his own. A day
0: has been for our man Grant Hill, announced as a Hall of Famer, He'll be inducted here in a few months, and on the same day, he creates a Hall of Fame Mimi. <laughs> that is lack of courage under fire. Totally. Oh man. Uh, how about you, oh, Bill? My God. That's <laughs> look at you, Bill. Come on. now. Quite as bad as that me. That was the reaction of girls I dated in high school when they looked at me. Oh, that was incredible. We could have got hurt. What you say?
1: Uh, Nance, how do you do fellow kids moment, to say the least.
0: How do you do fellow kids?
1: But fortunately for him, not the most egregious moment involving memes. Remember when Washington Nationals Bryce Harper went on Center with Scott Van Pelt three years ago to discuss being unanimously voted NL MVP, becoming the fourth youngest MVP in MLB history to do so at just 23? Maybe not, but you might remember this. There's no reason for someone that age to say something like this.
2: All right, I want to close with an idiotic question because I think I'm good at those. Um, It's it's a would you rather. (laughs) I'm looking at your hair right now, and obviously I have none. Would you rather be as bald as I am for the rest of your life or never have a season again where you have double-digit home runs? I'm talking like seven is a whole lot of home runs. So you're bald as Van Pelt, or seven home runs is like a big power year for you. Which
1: would you rather be? I don't even want to answer that right now because I know how many memes are going to be out there, me with the bald head. So <laughs> um,
2: I, I really probably would take the bald head. I mean, being able to, <laughs> you know, play this game every single day, <laughs> do everything I can, and um, I don't, do that. You could so stop. You I got can can my team win ball games. You don't have to stop. You, you don't have to continue <laughs> down this path. I just, I was curious if, if I could throw you a curveball. I think I did. I think I got a swing and a miss there. What you say?
1: And lastly, baseball is finally back, and while rain and even snow put a damper on opening day in the first slew of games during the first week, it's great to have America's pastime with us once again. Nothing quite says baseball like a game day hot dog, but if you're still on the fence about that, let this vendor try and convince you otherwise. <coughs> <coughs> Now to this week's guest and Bobby Regan, you might know him better as Barstool Riggs. He covers college basketball for Barstool Sports and is also the co-host of the Fundamentally Sound podcast with Ben Brust. It's always next to impossible to find someone who covers college hoops that wants to talk about it just one day after covering the national championship game, but thankfully Regs was kind enough to take some of his time to do so. He was in San Antonio for the Final Four, so he was able to give some insight about seeing the final three games of the tournament firsthand as well. So we'll chat about working for Barstool Sports and what some of his responsibilities are with them before diving into the major storylines of the NCAA tournament, including disappointments, Villanova's short-term dynasty, who we might see make a run next year, and of course, Sister Jean. You can follow Bobby on Twitter. He's at Barstool That's Barstool, common spelling, R-E-A-G-S. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Barstool Riggs. You can read him on BarstoolSports.com. He has been covering NCAA college hoops for several years now and does a fantastic job for them and is very tired and ready to take some restroom hoops, but is kind enough to come onto the show. How are you, sir?
2: good man good how are
1: you doing doing well as we mentioned it's somewhat of a day of mourning for hoops fans but as we also alluded to for those that covered the sport it is nice to finally get a break especially after a very busy month of march before we get into this past ncaa tournament what villanova was able to do i wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit with you and just have you tell the listeners how you got to where you are today how you ended up with Barstool, Holly you took over the college basketball beat. How that's sort of become a passion of yours.
2: So I mean I, I was always a college basketball. I was always a basketball fan, but um you know college basketball especially um growing up uh I you mean know, I played my entire life and uh decided not to play in college and go somewhere big instead. So I went to Kentucky um because it's harder to go to a bigger basketball school than anywhere else than that. And uh and you know, I was a journalism major there, writing. Uh, gosh, so that, I mean, that was back in the, the mid to, to late two thousands. And then, um, you know, I was writing for a couple of different places uh, after that after I graduated. And uh, kind of like a small world, like Clem, who was part time at the time, was following me, and uh, we were in a like a a random group DM with some other guys, and he just was kind of like, "Hey, have you ever thought about you know writing for us?" And I was like, "Well, yeah," but I just I've never done anything with it. He's like, well, here, talk to to Kevin. Talk to to uh, K- uh, K-Marco. So I made like a fake blog with like three blogs and the advice of, from KFC and, and sent it that along with my regular stuff to K-Marco. And he was like, all right, I'm posting this blog on Thursday. And it was in August. So college football fans were thrilled uh, that there was a college basketball preview in August, as I'm sure most football fans are typically – do when when that takes stage and uh so i mean it's it was kind of just dumb luck and uh but i've been doing it for this is just wrapped up my uh my third season
1: is it different for you being associated with barstool and not necessarily being part of the quote-unquote barstool culture as far as being immersed in the office and putting out video content and media content just in a sense sitting behind the keyboard and being that Capital J journalist, really doing what you do for college hoops?
2: Um, yes and no. I mean, I get obviously a lot more freedom, uh, than you know, if I'm working for a a more traditional blog or or outlet, you know, I get to still say whatever I want and express, you know, I don't have to necessarily worry about upsetting a certain coach or program by calling, you know, not calling them out, but for calling them out for, you know, uh, questionable decision-making during a game or something like that. Or, you know, if I, if I want to put something dumb in my headline, I can put something dumb in my headline type thing. So, yeah, I still get a little bit of that, but I mean, it's, you know, it's basketball. Like I, 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 I I'm able to talk about it in a fun way, but you know, at the same time, it's, it's hard to make college basketball truly the uh, uh, what I think people look at Barstool as from the comedy standpoint, because, you know, college basketball isn't necessarily humor all times.
1: Have you ever gotten chirped on Twitter from something that you've written now in the social media world, especially with the newer players seemingly all on Twitter or on Twitch? Now we're finding out. I know like Frank Kaminsky is a fan of Barstool Sports, so he could have been one that might not have liked something if you said Duke was better than Wisconsin years back. Has anyone come at you just based on your platform for anything you said, or did they usually stay away?
2: Um, no, usually. I mean, people, I think, kind of know it. Um, I remember... I think it was my first year. I, like, made a joke on Twitter during a Syracuse game uh, because a bench uh, a bench guy was uh, going nuts to walk on, and he, like, responded to me. He's like, well, I'll just steal your girl. Because he had, like, uh, he had, like the man bun going on. And I just said something. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know how that how we got in this situation, but here we are. Um, you know, I haven't mean, had, like, a coach reach out to me and be like, hey, I didn't really agree with that or anything like that. It's, you know, usually fans losing their mind more than anything else.
1: Is there any comparisons or how you would be able to describe, in a sense, the other thing that you do in your own show, fundamentally sound, and how you balance both of those things—the talking versus the writing—and what you try to do for each?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the podcast—it's—it's it's obviously a little different because that's more of like a recap, preview for a week or a couple days stretch. You know, we do it uh, once or twice a week and. You know, typically it's with a guest, so you're talking, you know, more about their experience or uh, what they're seeing and things like that. Um, you know, we, uh, I'm able to get, you know, some players. So, you know, talking about them is completely different than than writing, you know, preview or answering mailbag questions, things like that. So it, it's a good balance, just because you know, talking is just a different, you know, outlet than than putting, you know, writing down words and a little easier to kinda of explain what your, your point is We're just doing a podcast and talking that it is uh that it is writing too.
1: And as the editor-in-chief, Kay Marco, pointed out today, since the first day of the tournament, you were too shy of reaching 100 posts in that time period, leading the way by far, as you would imagine for somebody that covers college hoops to be writing about it during the most busy time of the year. Has there been a story that you've written in your time with Barstool or even in general that you remember the most or one that you're most proud of, whether that was something that you were able to break or just an opinion that you've had over the years that might stick out to you
2: yeah so there were a couple um this preseason i wrote a like four or five series uh blog on grand canyon um and and their first year being eligible for the postseason at the d1 level and we were kind of ahead of the game on that one you know later late in the year like the athletic and espn all had one and it was like well we were first um so that's kind of cool but you know as, as everything is early you kind of are battling football with it but you know, that was always a cool one because it was a little different. You know, we have videos from, like, Dan Marley and and uh, some players talking about it and specifically addressing stolen So that's, that's always a little cool thing. Um, in terms of breaking news, I mean, you know, I, I, I've broken a couple of coaching things and, and transfers, and it's always, you know, from the Barcel standpoint of where I don't know how serious some people take us, but. Um, you know, like when CBS Sports has to credit you or credit and credit Barstool for for breaking the news, it's always a, uh, a kind of a win uh, and makes you smile when, you know, uh, there are certain people out there that are a little uh, pissed off that it's that they have to attribute you.
1: Switching to the actual tournaments and some of the different things that you've been able to cover very well over the past month or so, I guess to quote Caleb, I can start here. Thoughts? it uh, just
2: in terms of like well uh, in terms of what <laughs>
1: Isn't that isn't that always the question we have when Caleb pulls <laughs> that during an interview yeah, in the public? Yeah, yeah. Just the tournament in general. We did see obviously the first sixteen seed beat a one seed and had some upsets, but I guess the end maybe wasn't as exciting as people might have hoped it was in the final four, just because the victories were so handedly won. But what Villanova was able to do when all was said and done, and the run that they've been able to go on from the Big East tournament. Overall, was this an enjoyable tournament from you? Now that the dust is finally settled,
2: yeah. I mean, I think it was a, a good tournament. Um, you know, I don't think it was necessarily played at a a super high level across the board, but you got a lot of close games um, and and a lot of moments that I that people remember, whether it's UMBC or Loyola or or you know the the Saturday or the Sunday comebacks with against Cincinnati and Xavier. So there's a lot of I think uh, memories from the, the tournament that people will remember, but uh, you know, I, it was kind of what most people want. Right. And and by that, I mean, you want the craziness early and then you hope it gets to chalk. And now it wasn't completely chalk, but three of the four final four teams were top 20 teams in the country. And the finals were two top 10, top 15 teams. Like that's, that's what you want. And um, you know, from from my standpoint, I'm I was thrilled that we at least got what I felt like was a true championship game between two top 15 teams. That's kind of what I cheer for every year, and uh, especially with how fluky the, uh, the NCAA, NCAA tournament is. So, you know, I, I think it was in general a good one
1: was the biggest story overall from the tournament the sister Jean journey or was Villanova able to override that in a sense winning their second title in three years
2: yeah I mean it's definitely it's definitely Villanova um the fact that they were able to win um you know right now as two they've kind of solidified themselves to the casual fan as a you know a a dominant program and a blue blood program which you know people don't. Like to just hand out all willy-nilly, apparently. But, um, I I mean, again, it's Villanova. And then, honestly, I think it's even UMBC over Loyola.
1: Just getting into Villanova. And, obviously, they've been talked about throughout the day. And it will probably continue to be talked about as the week goes on. And even looking ahead to next season, as some of the early rankings have already come out of the odds to win the 2019 championship already. It seems like Jay Wright has gone against the grain in a sense when it comes to the one-and-done mentality that's become a little bit more popular in recent years with the likes of Kentucky and Duke and the list goes on with those types of schools compared to maybe North Carolina or the old Duke, where a team would build itself up to have seniors and juniors lead the team and get far and deep into the tournament rather than relying on young players. Jay Wright seems to have been able to get these guys that will probably still go to the NBA, but they won't maybe go in the first round or be that high of a pick, and has developed almost a dynasty, if you can look at it that way, depending on how the next couple of years pan out. Are you a fan of what he's been able to do, his coaching style, how he's built his team, and how he's been able to get that success.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think he's one of the five best coaches in the game, all things considered. Um, You know, I, I think there is a little bit of a misnomer when it comes to Jay Wright and the fact that, you know, people talk about him like you kind of did about how he recruits, and he still recruits at a high level, right? Like, they go after top 20 guys, and they have top 10 classes it's just not the it's not the top 10 guys in the class it's he'll go after you know 20 22 40 and 50 as opposed to you know one four seven nine and ten so uh, he, it's not like they're taking you know no name guys and turning into uh stars but it, he does an excellent job of getting guys that fit Nova and still are you know, good enough to play anywhere in the country.
1: There's been some comparisons that the Villanova team, if it could mirror one in the NBA, would be mirroring the Warriors based on how they play based on their high percentage of three-point shots, based on how they move the ball, and even based on sometimes being able to have those notable names stick around long enough to at least be known as threats for the Villanova team. Do you see a similarity with both if we had to make a comparison since people love doing that in the NBA to college basketball with them being closest to the Warriors?
2: I mean, sure. Um, Only because uh, of the shooting, I guess, but I, I I don't think I, I don't think you can ever compare a college basketball team's system or or stylistic play to an NBA team. It's just so different. But I, I mean, yeah, the small ball combined with uh, you know combined with the shooting and and having a I guess a, a handful of stars uh, when you look at like Bridges and. Um, And Brunson kind of filling the quote like Katie and and Steph rolls, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, I guess if you had to compare uh, them to an NBA team, you know, it had to be the Warriors.
1: For anyone thinking you might have started your vacation early, you did release today the way too early college basketball top 25 rankings, which people can find at Barcelsports.com and I'll attach those in my show notes as well. And what do you know, Villanova is number one looking ahead to next year, just based on they're almost returning everyone. I don't know if anyone's going to leave who might decide to. I don't know if Dante DiVincenzo is going to maybe test the market, maybe without an agent. So if things don't go well he could come back based on what he was able to do in the national championship game sort of a sell high on himself but what do you think has Villanova as that standout team and the best one to have a shot at next year's national championship
2: I, I mean it, it's just buying into the system it's the fact that they they do return all these guys and and you know I think they're going to end up returning Eric Paschal Dante DiVincenzo, Phil Booth um, and then Colin Gillespie Jermaine Samuels, and Demir cosby like Those are six dudes that were in the rotation this year, um, and someone's going to take a jump because it happens every year with Nova, and then they bring in a guy like Javon Quinterly and Cole Swider, and uh, it's going to be another 30-win season for Villanova. It's just something that you can just count on year after year, so to the point of, you know, I just I, I like their roster fit better than anyone else right now, until we obviously know what else happens uh, in terms of, you know, declaring and transfers and all that
1: what do you foresee as future of Jay Wright whether he's set where he is if he'll become the next coach k in a sense of just sticking around for a very long time and planning his feet where he is at Villanova or if you think he might either test the waters with another team or even test the waters and move to the NBA
2: no I think he's I think he's going to be a nova lifer um you know he already had the potential to leave uh if he wanted to and and he hasn't. So I, I don't see why he'd leave now when this thing's rolling. Um, You know, he's he's a Nova guy. He's a Philly, you know, uh, an Eastern Pennsylvania guy. So I, I you know, I, I think it's completely, uh, completely, completely fine and completely uh, reasonable to think that he will uh, be a Nova for, you know, until he wants to retire.
1: We briefly mentioned the 16 beating the one for the first time in tournament history and obviously having a negative effect on Virginia, who came into the tournament as a team that could potentially win it just based on their defense, I guess, comparatively being as good as Villanova's offense, if that makes sense to the listeners. Though they didn't score a lot of points, it was almost like. You won't be able to keep up with them, even though they don't light up the scoreboard, just because of how well their defense was able to play. And now, unfortunately for Tony Bennett, his name gets put next to that loss as the number one seed to be the first to go down, even though he was able to win the Naismith Coach of the Year award and he was one of the best coaches of the regular season and did incredible in the ACC. Does that have any negative effect on his legacy or or how we should maybe view his tenure at Virginia?
2: No, it's only going to matter to the casual fans that want to argue about about things, um, because those who around the around the college basketball world know how how good of a coach Tony Bennett is, and to base a guy's career or or uh, look at someone's career that way in a, in a one game setting, um, it, I mean, it's just honestly just the, the lazy take to do, because you know, I, I mean, how many bad losses are there? Like Roy Williams lost to Wofford. It just at home. It just happened. And not be in the NCAA tournament. Does that mean, you know, does that does that mean anything different, you know, than than losing a neutral court game to UMBC? Um, so it, it's just it's always weird like that. Um, I, I'm not one that buys too much into NCAA tournament success or failure. Um, you know, I'd rather see consistent play for for the, the course of a season or something like that. So I'm not going to sit here and you know, Virginia shouldn't lose to UMBC and. And yes, that is something that Tony Bennett has to wear. But still, it's just, uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and kill him for the loss.
1: If there was a way to make changes without having to worry about advertising dollars or the money involved or making anyone angry, you mentioned that the tournament isn't necessarily the best gauge at finding the actual best team just because it can be so crazy. And on any given game... The worst team, at least on paper, can play better and get that win. And before you know it, you're out of the tournament. Is there anything that you would like to change, whether that's from the bracket itself or from some of the things that were changed with the NIT, with moving to quarters or moving the three point line back? Is there anything that sticks out to you that maybe you'd like to see fixed, even if it's something that isn't actually going to be?
2: I mean, I have a laundry list of things I'd like to fix. Um, Yeah, I think you need to go quarters. I think thousands need to reset. I think you need, uh, I think the season should start in uh, November, December instead of October and take advantage of when football's not going. I think you need to get people that actually know the sport in the committee um, instead of just ADs. I think you need... I, I think uh, I mean you need to do defensive three seconds. I would implement right away because refs have zero idea what the hell a charge or a block is. Um, I, there's a, there's a laundry list of things that can make college basketball better, and uh, I, I disagree with what Mark Emmert tries to do with like these commissions and and even like the commission on college basketball he started when the FBI thing came out. You put Condoleezza Rice in charge, and the most recent player you have on the Commission is Grant Hill. Like give me a break. Get somebody that actually knows what's currently going on that can actually help you out. Um, so I, I I just think there's it's a mess right now. And there's definitely a uh there's definitely a bunch of uh uh changes I would make in a in a heartbeat if I was commissioner of college basketball.
1: Is there a team that maybe disappointed you the most from this tournament?
2: I mean Arizona or Florida, Virginia. I mean, from the tournament, I mean, it has to be Virginia. You lost to a 16 seed, um, and you're a favorite to get to the Final Four. Um, and from there, then it's probably Arizona, um, you know, losing to Buffalo. So I, I think it's one of those two. I don't I don't know if there's another answer. Maybe Michigan State, you know, one of those three, I, I think would be the only possible possible answers.
1: What was the atmosphere like for this year's Final Four?
2: I mean, it was loud, like all four teams traveled really well. Um, I was sitting behind the Loyola and the Kansas student section. So it was a little different on that end of the floor. Um, But I, I, you know, I thought it was a really good crowd. Um, Like I said, all four teams traveled just incredibly well. So um, it it was cool to see because you had, you know, the maize and blue and one and one fourth you had. Uh, the red and yellow in one in another fourth. And then you had Villanova's blue on, on, you know, the right upper side and you had Kansas's blue on the left upper side. So it was, uh, you know, it was really cool.
1: Now, are you getting access to the post game pressers and can you flash a barstool sports press pass now be because of what they've been able to do in the past couple of years? Are you able to venture around or are you mostly there as a fan?
2: No, I got, I was credentialed for the games
1: do you have an interview or maybe something that you overheard that sticks out from this particular experience, either from a player of a coach that you got to chat with or her to chat with?
2: No, not really. Just because everyone is so, uh, robotic during that type of thing. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like you catching them at a, at a bar or, you know, walking around by, by yourself. It's, you know, it's in the locker room or it's in a, at a, uh, at a press, you know, an official presser. So uh, everyone knows what answers they're given there. And there's nothing that's really, uh, really crazy, I think.
1: And aside from Villanova regarding next year's tournament, I'm guessing we can expect at least from your early gages that we'll probably see similar blue bloods having a good chance to make a run, the Dukes, the Kansases and Kentucky's those teams. But is there one or two teams that you think might be able to shock some people <clears throat> and at least make a pretty deep run into the tournament that might not be under the spotlight?
2: Yeah, if uh if Jordan, Caroline, Cody, and, and uh, Kayla Martin all return, uh, Nevada is going to be a preseason top ten team in the country, um, and that's kind of crazy to think when people are going to look at it and go, who, 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 "What is Nevada?" You know, they're going to think UNLV probably first. Um, so it's I, I absolutely love that team. They're going to be good. Kansas State's going to be really good. Virginia Tech's going to be really good. So there's a lot of teams that aren't traditionally known as basketball schools that are going to be a uh, you know, a, a preseason top 15 team and and people will be surprised.
1: I know things aren't going to necessarily settle for you as far as the writing goes and the stories you're going to be breaking just based on the NBA draft and coaching moves and different players moving here and there and different recruiting that happens. What are some things that you'll be up to in the next couple months that readers can find or listeners can find as to some of the different things you'll be doing?
2: Yeah, like you said, I'll be doing uh, NBA draft previews. I do individual breakdowns for you know top sixty ish prospects. I do mock drafts. Um, I'll be doing regular NBA stuff now uh, that 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 season's uh, coming into playoff time. Um, so you'll you'll get a little bit of everything, and then you know college basketball is always mixed in. So um, yeah, it's it, it's it's a slow time, but it's still a busy time.
1: And who you got at the Masters this weekend?
2: I, I still, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm I'm torn. I you know my I, my guy is always to take Kucher and Snedeker. I love those still, so I, I'll I'll stick with Kucher. He's due.
1: If Tiger should pull off a miracle, would the merch for Barstool be similar to what it is when the Patriots win the Super Bowl?
2: It might be more because like it's not just New England now buying.
1: Well, if we call Tiger to win right now, and this comes out on Wednesday, maybe Riggs and Trent can hook us up with some foreplay gear. How about that? Yeah, there we go. There we go. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on to the show and talking about some of the different things you do with Barstool Sports and then obviously the tournament that you've so diligently covered for another year and got to experience firsthand. It was a pleasure getting to hear that and getting to recap it with you. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no problem, man. Have a good one.
1: Thanks again to Bobby for coming on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film, compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, at long last, Joe will break down Black Panther, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as following T'Challa who, after the events of Captain America's Civil War, returns home to the isolated, technologically advanced African nation of Wakanda to take his place as king. However, when an old enemy reappears on the radar, his time as king in Black Panther is tested when he is drawn into a conflict that puts the entire fate of Wakanda and the world at risk. You can find Joe on Twitter at DukeMish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cup of dash or hyphen or however you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice.
0: What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Barice, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. In a film franchise of 18 movies to date, Black Panther is the best in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the most financially successful comic book movie in the United States. How did that happen? The answer is simple, I promise you that. But to get there, let's take it one step at a time. Let's go to the tape. The Direction Let's not mince words. Ryan Coogler is a genius. Yes, a genius. It's no easy task to make three feature films, let alone to have those films all be A-pluses. Oh yeah, and they're also the first three films of his career. Most directors can only dream to have Fruitvale Station, Creed, and Black Panther caliber films on their resumes. Coogler accomplished that by age 31. In his last film, he took a film franchise that included a Best Picture winner and created the best in the series with Creed. Sound familiar? What does he bring to the table? Well-shot action, using long takes when he can to immerse the audience in the film. Coogler also knows what to expect from his actors and gets the best performances possible out of them by feeding into their strengths. Most of all, he captures the heart of his stories to create not only technical masterpieces, but also emotionally powerful films. When Coogler's name was dropped to direct Black Panther, I knew it had the potential to be something special. The acting. Honestly, the first trailer for Black Panther didn't impress me. Marvel does have a tendency to rush trailers out, but that trailer would have been a cause for concern for any other film. When asked if I thought the movie was going to be good after that trailer, I said, this movie has too much talent to fail. When there's a movie about an important black historical figure, Hollywood turns to Chadwick Boseman. He's played Jackie Robinson, James Brown, and Thurgood Marshall. The reason? Because he delivers in everything. Even watch the little scene movie Draft Day and tell me he doesn't add to it in such a small role. He's a slam dunk playing Black Panther. Michael B. Jordan, who has starred in Kugloo's three films, plays the villain this time. He consistently stands out with his great acting in every film, especially in films I don't particularly enjoy. I liked Chronicle until Jordan's character died. Even in the horrid Fantastic Four reboot, He figures out a way to work with the material and create a decent and fun character. Daniel Kaluuya was coming off a breakthrough performance in Get Out, which earned him a well-deserved Oscar nomination. Martin Freeman is cast perfectly as the fish-out-of-water character, which he handles to perfection. He has the experience in Sherlock and The Hobbit franchise to master the role. Andy Serkis is a motion-capture legend, but in Black Panther he's himself, and he's having a blast, bringing a great energy to the film. Sterling K. Brown, who I loved in The People vs. O.J. Simpson, makes the most of his short time on screen. Forrest Whitaker is Forrest Whitaker. But I'm leaving someone out. Leaving someone out. Oh right, the women are arguably the best part of the film. Lupita Nungo's been good for years with an Oscar under her belt. She's no different here, building a relationship with Bozeman. I know Denai Guerrera as Michonne from The Walking Dead, and without her in that, the show would be incredibly difficult to watch. I mean, the show's still bad, but it would be worse without her. Anyway, it's nice to see her in something where the material lives up to her talent. She's amazing in Black Panther's action sequences, but she's also a good actress. She's really the full package, and I'd love to see her in other things. I had never seen Letitia Wright before. Well, apparently she was in The Commuter, but let's not talk about that movie. Wright plays Bozeman's younger sister, and their chemistry is essential to the film. The way they interact is fun and loving, the way a sibling relationship should be. Although Nungo and Guerrera use their strength, fighting skill, and intelligence on the battlefield to aid the cause, Wright puts her efforts into science and technology to build weapons and also save lives. It's great to see how powerful these women are in different ways. The Movie Going into Black Panther, I obviously knew the movie would be good. The hype was huge. My only concern was my ability to temper the hype. I soon realized I had nothing to worry about because Black Panther was living up to it. Kugler brings to the table what he always does as the one-take action sequences had me giddy. The stellar cast shines and really help you understand and relate to the characters and the culture. Visually, Black Panther is stunning. It's really a movie to see in theaters if you haven't already. They do a nice job of bringing you into the culture visually and with the costume design. Michael B. Jordan is arguably the best Marvel villain. I also love that every character is human. Not so much in the literal sense of the word, but they all make mistakes that they have to learn from or act based on what they have experienced in the past. We can relate to that. That hooks us as an audience. The movie also has a few political and social undertones without beating you over the head and telling you which path is the right one. It's the theme of, we have the resources. Should we help people with it or protect ourselves? That's America right now. Also, I thought it was pretty interesting how they handled race in Black Panther. Instead of making it a white versus black issue, Jordan is asking Bozeman why they never helped the blacks throughout the world when they had the technology to do so. It puts focus on everybody. I like that message of, we need to get better as a society. The world needs to improve the bottom line, the talent attached to Black Panther meant the movie couldn't fail, but Coogler created another masterpiece that somehow still took us by surprise. It is the best movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that's saying something. I'd be shocked if it doesn't end up on my Top 10 Favorites of the Year list. And remember how I said the answer to how this movie became successful was simple? Well I'm ready to tell you. Black Panther was a great movie. People will go see great movies. This is why we're looking for more diversity in film. Every race, culture, and sex has a unique story to tell. It's original and fresh and just as important as the countless movies about white men. Let's let them tell it. I'll compare Black Panther to LeBron James. Although I still don't like him so much, LeBron is one of the greatest players in NBA history, if not the greatest. And from the day he entered the league, he's proven a game changer. Black Panther did the same for movies in general and films in the comic book genre. Sexy. Check! Uh,
1: Check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the national football league and whatever else i happen to have up my sleeve on the bridge keeping you connected with all things sports